Listen, last week I got home, and Abby said, oh, all the women are talking. They got all these questions about the first part. I said, really, about well, about all the stuff about women and what they can do in the church. So if it's true, and it wasn't sort of the usual exaggeration, the, no, never mind. If that's true, <laughs> if that's true, I would like to know, before we get into this week's stuff, I really, I really do love my wife. I know you're a new member, and you think right now, you're like, I can't join this church. I know, exactly. Uh, she's not too sure either, but I do. So if you have questions about last week's stuff that I gave you, ask now or forever hold your peace. If you have questions, I can already tell you what I think the questions will be. Go ahead, Jeanette. Nope, nope, nope. That, it's all in there. It's all in the stuff from last week. There were some questions. Yes, you can do that. If you didn't, yeah. If you weren't here, you can let me know next week. But any questions from last week if you were here? The misconception is that the desert mothers were completely detached from the convent. The, the mis, well, I'll just simplify it. The misconception is that the desert mothers were out in the desert all by themselves, saying prayers on their own, and never had contact with community. Which it doesn't say that. But that, if you ask somebody today, tell me about the desert mother. Oh, they lived in the desert by themselves. Well, that's actually not true. So the, the desert mothers and their communities went hand in hand with the convent communities. They were shaped after each other, prayer seven times a day. And sometimes they were even the same thing. Like if you go to Mount Sinai today, you'll see monasteries and convents all over the place. Many of those were desert mothers and desert fathers who started those, worked in those, lived in those, played in those. So they sort of go hand in hand. Okay? That wasn't the question I expected, but good. Any other questions? Yes. Uh, well, remember, who would have gone into the convent? What would, you, what would your life have been like? Just take a guess. If you were guessing and you were looking at somebody, or even look today, who enters the priesthood? Because that's what I know more about than convents. Who, and I'm talking about the Roman priesthood. Who enters it? Well, yeah, I know it's men. <laughs> Not everybody took the summer off like you, Kirby. I mean, I've been around this whole time. <laughs> Sorry, that was one joke too many. I got the look from your husband like, okay, move it on. Single men, yes, that's good. Single men. What are their lives like before they enter the convent? Very well educated. Many of them have had what kind of life? A good life, a boring life, a fun life, an exotic life? Too much partying, not enough partying. What do you think? Yeah, but the tide is turning. So uh, let me translate. These are all people who are trying to escape the troubles of the world today. So not everybody, but lots of them. If you go to the, I mean, I'm stunned when you go to the convent how many priests, young priests, look like normal guys? And you don't get that, I mean, you don't get that image in your head when you think, oh, a seminarian, he must be a guy who has no friends, who can't make it in the world, very little education, and is sort of a pietist, he wants to go to the priesthood. That's not it at all. They're guys who have gone to NIU, big party school, go NIU, lots of partying, oftentimes lots of relationships, and they've tried to escape the chaos of the world by entering the monastery by entering the priesthood. It's the same thing with these women. I don't know who asked the question. Who asked the question? Yeah, it's the same thing with these women. These are very normal women, oftentimes from very wealthy families, who have left the cares of the world. Why? Because they want a deeper connection to Christ. Well, oftentimes they didn't have children. Yeah, many of them did not have children. If they did, oftentimes they were widows, so their children were older, um, and they entered that way. So they did leave behind their families. In fact, I have a very good friend who uh, is, is somewhat near death, a, a Catholic brother, 
He was actually the principal of the high school I went to. Um, he had a massive stroke. He's just not doing very well. And I unfortunately can't get a hold of him. But he said that when he became a Catholic brother, they would bring you in to the service where you were received as a brother in like a, a wedding tuxedo. Like a, I mean, not a, but like a suit. You'd be dressed up very nicely like you were going to a wedding. They would then send you off to put on your habit, your black garb, your brown garb, whatever order it is, and you'd come back out and present to your mother and father these wedding garments because you've left the family. Just like a marriage. When you're married, you leave your father and mother and hold fast to your wife, right? So it's the same thing. Oftentimes you'll see women, if you ever watch it on TV, when women are received as nuns, they'll come in sometimes even dressed like brides. Because this, this for them is their new family, their new relationship, their new marriage. They're married to Christ. Okay? Any other questions? Wow. Okay, that's good. Let me give you this. Yeah, go ahead. While you, while you, at, no, while you ask, we're going to hand this out. This is the, this is the difference between um, like what your evangelical friends would understand and your Catholic friends. And, and Lutherans have to find their spot someplace in between. I at least think from our Lutheran tradition, it's probably closer to your Catholic friends. Your evangelical friends see being a pastor or being a youth minister as just sort of a job, oftentimes. It's just a job. And you can leave it, you can come, you can go. And there are Lutherans who view the same thing. The worst thing a Lutheran pastor could ever say is, when I retire, I stop being a pastor. Your Catholic friends, they see this not only just as a vocation, a job, a way to make money, because oftentimes they don't. They see it as it's their being, their existence. It's who they are. It now defines them. Just like marriage now defines you. You take your spouse's name. You're joined to your husband. Everything that belongs to him belongs to you, and vice versa. It's the exact same thing in the ministry as far as your Catholic friends, nuns, priests, deaconesses, pick your person, and frankly in the Lutheran church. It's the same thing. So you have to see leaving to go to the monastery as a bigger decision than, ah, you know what, it, uh, like I'm going to go to boot camp for a couple weeks or military school. That's not what this is like. This is entering in into a new reality. That's who these women are. And you see this, we'll see it today, in every part of their existence, their prayers, what they say, what they think about, how they view things like sexuality, because they're not obviously in relationships with men. All these things influence every aspect of their existence, and primarily they affect their relationship with Christ. Everything for, for these desert mothers, everything, is about being joined to Jesus. That's what it's all about. Okay? Now, you may have heard, uh, there was this big deal in the sports world uh, just this past week where this agent came out and basically said, yeah, I'm going to rat on everybody. What happened was I was paying these college players to come and you know, be under my care as agent. I was getting them good deals in the NFL. I was talking to Carol about this earlier today. Uh, and he then ratted out all these guys whom he had paid. And, of course, what do the guys do when they're ratted out? Wasn't me. Like Shaggy. Wasn't me. Right? Wasn't me. A, a certain demographic in the room knows exactly what I'm talking about. It wasn't me, like Shaggy. Yeah, I won't sing the rest of the song, but I could if I wanted. Just like you sure heard Bruzek pull up today. Who'd you have on, Dre? No, Biggie. B-I-G-P-O-P-P-N. No info for the DA. Federal agents mad because I'm flagrant. Tap the cell. Jan? And the phone in my basement. Okay, good. Just so you know I'm connected to the world still. See, I'm not. Yeah, exactly. I know, I know. The rest of the group is thinking, move this thing along. Okay, so what happens? Yeah, what world is he in? Thank you. That was very generous. Uh, 
uh, you know what happens. These guys say, it wasn't me. So this is from the guy. I just read this this morning at breakfast. This is yesterday's Sports Illustrated. Just the big part in the middle. And I, and I think this is brilliant, but I want you to figure out why I think it's brilliant. I know that's a tough task, Vic. Why do I think this is brilliant? I will never forget, this is the agent, I will never forget the first time I paid a player. There are moments you will always remember, like your first kiss, your first home run, or the day you met your wife. For me, the first time I broke an NCAA rule to try and land a client is just as indelible. I think that's brilliant. Now, why do you think I think it's brilliant? Well, I'll give you one hint. This is his confession. That's one hint. Just like at the end of 8 Mile, that's Eminem's confession. Do you see him on 60 Minutes this week? Oh, it was great. If I was teaching at the seminary and teaching preaching, you know what I would do? Maddie, this is going to stun you. No lie. The first preaching class, I'd walk in, put on a CD of Eminem, listen to one song, and walk out of the room. Say, that's preaching. I know. May the Queen of Angels have mercy on us. No, he didn't sing with Frank Sinatra. He may be saying about Frank Sinatra. He didn't sing with Frank Sinatra. I can promise you that. Okay, so this is his confession one, but why is it so brilliant? Why is it so brilliant? What has stuck with him his entire life? This first sin. And it wasn't just a little sin. It was a big sin. Now, so I ask you, is it good? Is it good for your sins to stick with you? Okay, good. Tell me why, Maddie. Yeah? Okay, well, now, good. Keep going now. Do you, if this does, does this mean that he hasn't been forgiven just because he's forgot, not forgotten? Are there some sins that you're forgiven for that you forget about? Yeah. Are there some sins you're forgiven for and you don't forget about? Or how about when your husband gets up in the morning and gives you a hard time and he says, I'm sorry, and you say, I forgive you. The next morning, you're going to what? Remember what he did the morning before, right? You might even say, be careful, don't do it again, right? Exactly. So just, just because you forgive someone or you're forgiven doesn't mean it's forgotten. Okay? But is the memory of your sins a good thing? Maddie says no. Yes, good. Okay, good. So one is, are you using it in the way of the law? That would be, it, it, it's continually convicting you of guilt. The other way would be in the way of the gospel, where it shows you what you've done and what you shouldn't do again. This is why, Vicar, are you working on your phone right now? Yes. You're, you're not going to get this at the seminary, buddy. Put that thing away. <laughs> Did he really text you? <laughs> well, you think I'm like a cheap date? Like you can just do whatever? Come on now. Man, this is why the third use of the law is not the third use of the law, right? All right, so one way it might be of gospel use to you is to help you to never do it again. All right, Lutherans talk about the law functions three ways. You know this from your catechism. Curb, mirror, and guide. Yeah, guess what? How many are, how many are correct? The first two, curb and mirror. Guess which one's wrong? Guide, because if you don't want to do it again and you're trying to get better, is that law or gospel? There are only one other option. It's the gospel. Yeah, right. This is not a trick question. Okay, so if the memory of your sins helps you to be so fearful of doing them again because you know what pain it caused you, your spouse, your family, that's actually a good thing. So I give you this. Pass that around, Vic. Now, we are getting somewhere, I promise you. It's partially true. Resentful, yeah, to become resentful gives power back to the offender. Yeah, exactly. Who's the only one that can ever forget the sins that have been forgiven? The Lord. There's no possible way... At the last day, uh, you know, unless the Lord blesses you with uh, divine forgetfulness, 
that you'll ever be able to forget all the sins that you've either been forgiven of or for which you have forgiven others. There's no possible way. Now, you know the Lord can do that because it says in the Psalms, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed your transgressions from you, never to remember them again, right? So the Lord forgets, um, but it's difficult for you and I to do that. So look here, page 41. This is from the Minister's Prayer Book. Some of you have this. This is the confession for Friday, and I just want, I just want to read this to you and see if it jives with the Sports Illustrated article. O merciful God, full of compassion. Now just listen to the way, he, way we describe the Lord. Merciful, which means what? Yeah, merciful, full of mercy, good. What does it mean to be merciful? If you're merciful to your kids, what does that mean? Yeah, you give them the benefit of the? Like yesterday, when I walk in the room, and Emma has Claire in her saucer turned upside down, no lie, turned upside down, Claire is head first going out of the saucer, and Emma's going, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Sobbing. Daddy, Daddy, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Now, the reason I didn't get mad was, not because I'm always a merciful guy, but because it was an accident. She didn't do it on purpose. So mercy puts the best construction on stuff. Oh, merciful God, full of compassion, long-suffering, that's a good one, and of great pity. What does it mean to, be, to have pity? Yeah, he actually feels sorry for you. He can't believe that he created Adam and Eve and they did something so stupid. He just can't believe it. But he doesn't get angry. He's like, oh my gosh, what have they done? Right? Who sparest when we deserve punishment, so he doesn't give you what you deserve, and in thy wrath thinkest upon mercy. This obviously is old, old English. Make me earnestly to repent, that means to turn around, and to, be, and to be heartily sorry for all my misdoings, all my sins. Now listen to this line. Make the remembrance, you can put in parentheses, of my sins, make the remembrance of my sins so burdensome and painful that I may flee to thee with a troubled spirit and a contrite heart. What does he mean in this confession? Make the remembrance of my sins so burdensome and painful. What does that mean? It means exactly what this guy said in the article. The first time I broke an NCAA rule to try and land a client is just as indelible. Guess what he'll never do again, hopefully. Really? Interesting. Oh, yeah, that's true. I didn't read it that way at all. That's very interesting. Keep going. Yeah, go ahead. Well... <laughs> Now remember, if you're merciful, you put the best construction on it. So let's go there. Keep going. Interesting. So it's not always, you don't always remember just happy things, but you remember different things maybe than your sins. Yeah. Oh, I, I completely agree. Yes, I can remember where I was sitting when the, when the planes went into the Twin Towers. I can remember it like it was yesterday. Yeah. Yeah. But have you ever, so here's the question. Have you ever had that experience with your sins? I mean, I have. We're, and, and this is not the everyday misdoings. And there's a point to this. The point is, I'll just give you the tagline. The point is, this is precisely the reason the women went out into the desert. What they dealt with every day was a remembrance of their sins. And they fled the chaos of the world for the simplicity of the desert. Why? So they wouldn't do it again. Okay? And I want to show you 
Now, you, you, again, we can debate, and I don't know unless we talk to the guy. He'll have an interview so you can listen to him sometime, whether or not he's bragging or if he's got a contrite heart. Who knows? Let's put the best construction on and say he's got a contrite heart. Let's just say it. It doesn't matter, really, because in your confession, you ask the Lord to help you do the exact same thing, to have such a painful remember, remembrance of your sins that you never do them again. That's precisely what the desert mothers are after. They have a painful remembrance of their sins, and they're trying to flee to the simplicity of the wilderness so they never do it again. So the question I would ask you, and I, I asked myself this this morning, and I don't want to know your sin, because hopefully that's all been squared up and that's been done away. So we forget about the sin. Now we, tr now we do remember, and this is the thing you'll learn about coming to confession if you ever come. We will never bring up your sins again. I told you the time where someone came in to confess, and at the very end he said, well, all that stuff. And I said, what stuff? Because it's all been done away with. That doesn't mean we don't talk about how, going, how to go forward. Okay? That doesn't mean we don't talk about how to go forward. So if you come in and you've got a range of sins, and they can all be sort of boiled down to one thing, what we'll talk about is how you'll not do that again. So the question is, for your own great sins, think about the situations surrounding that. And some of you may say, I got nothing. God bless you. Some of you may have a list of 15 things. God bless you. The point is, what were the situations surrounding that grave sin? I can think of my own. The situations surrounding are chaos in your life. You thought you were better than you were. Uh, you took things for granted. The things I would not describe, or the, the words I would not use to describe that situation are simplicity, order, gratefulness, hope. There's a trend here. When things like, and we talked about this last week, it was everything, or not everything, most things on this side of the board. When things like chaos, um, I mean, give me some other things. Pride, uh, yeah, greed, etc. When those things creep in, what's soon to follow? Why? This is the point. Why are sins soon to follow? Good, and keep going. Chaos lends itself to whom? To God or to the devil? To the devil. This is why, and we'll run it in the bulletin this weekend, the guys down in the mine, remember what the one guy said? There was a battle between God and the devil, and God won. I chose, yeah, I chose God, and God won, he said. The, that is so amazing. The reason it's amazing is not because he just used the word God in an interview. The reason it's amazing is, think about what the cave was like. Darkness. Rocks falling. Animals. I mean, what all is down there? No food. Is it chaos or order? Chaos. Who should have won the day in the mine? The devil. Who won the day? God. This is exactly what's going on with the desert mothers. Okay? So I give you now, I told you I'd give you a selection from it. I'll give you this, okay? Does this make sense so far? Chaos lends itself to sin. Because chaos gives an opening for Satan. Now, the interesting thing, I, you know, when you read the sayings of the Desert Fathers, it's not like this book at all. Um, the sayings of the Desert Fathers are very much just big selections of sayings. So they're like pages of Desert Father so-and-so said this, and it's five pages. What this woman has done, and at first I didn't like it, but now I find it helpful, she's taken very, very short bits, like a sentence or two, and then she's written something to help explain it. Then she gives another sentence or two. And she's written a, so it's like a commentary in and out. 
I want to look at the main portions of the Desert Mothers, which may only be a couple points, but I want to talk about those things and see what we can learn given this discussion of chaos and order. Okay? All right, you should have the first page, I think, is page 34. Okay? Now, uh, not, I don't want to read all these pages to you. What I, want to, what I want to read you is just the first page and then the very short bits from the Desert Mothers. But listen to the first page and think about your own life. I know these are not your same sins. I know they may not be your same struggles. But on the grand scheme of sins and struggles, my guess is these uh, are equal, if, or, or maybe yours are equal, if not greater than these. So just look at our Western and postmodern minds may find these sayings harsh, and you will. When you read these, you're going to say, I can't believe she said that. They exalt suffering, show a suspicious attitude toward the human body, and reject the goodness of sexuality. Now, why would they reject the goodness of sexuality? What's going on in the early church as far as sexuality is concerned? In the real world. Chaos. Just think of Paul's letters like to the church in Corinth. I mean, what are his, what are his main complaints with the church in Corinth? Everybody is sleeping with everybody. And sometimes it's not even men and women. So that's the culture, okay? So part of the reason there's a rejection of sexuality is not because they thought sex was bad, but in that time it was so distorted that, frankly, they decided disuse was better than misuse. We can argue that, but that's the, that's the world they lived in. We should remember that these sayings come from a different understanding of human physiology and from a culture that saw sexuality as a deterrent to the spiritual journey. The sayings of the desert ascetics often refer to demons. Now, here's the thing. I wonder how many of you wake up in the morning and realize there are demons in the world. I mean, and I, I don't mean just like, oh, they're, they're bad things. I mean real, live demons. I mean, yeah. Donna, thanks for being honest. Donna says, I don't. Jan says she doesn't. How many of you do wake up in the morning and realize there are demons in the world, live demons? Uh, boy, I could show you, okay? This is real live stuff. When you go to someone's house and, you know, walls are talking to people, that's live stuff, okay? So this is the world we live in, and it's also the world of the Desert Mothers. Demons, or unclean spirits, were real and personal experiences for the early Christians. Now, and again, I don't mean to stop at every sentence, but this is so good. The reason it was real and personal was because the church had just begun its, 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 let me keep stuttering, its existence, I'm going too fast now, its existence, so who was on full force? The devil and his demons. When the church grows and flourishes, the devil is on attack. Rage and aggressive violence, sexual desire, seizures, and at times, physical paralysis were all attributed to demonic possession. Now, today we'd say there are other reasons for some of those. Much of what we understand today is physiological or neurological disorders or natural biological urges were attributed to demons. There you go. If you have a seizure today, it doesn't mean you have a demon. But you could have a demon and have a seizure. Okay? You saw that in the Gospels. It threw the man into convulsions. Ama, Sincletica, spoke from personal experience of her dealings with the demon of fornication. Today we nuance our understanding of human biology, normal sex drive, and psychological with the inner call to make responsible and committed decisions. We understand that to be tempted is common and normal. Now this is a very strange thing, and she makes a great point. For the early Christians, to be tempted was not common and was not normal. It was not the way we were, we were created to live. You think about life today, you turn on the TV, you see something you shouldn't see, and we say, well, that's just 
That's just life. That's just life. Right? Temptation, it's just normal. It's not the way we were created to live. These sayings were meant to be evocative, not merely descriptive or prescriptive, in order to elicit a deeper response from the listener. It's like if you swear in a sermon. What happens? Everybody listens. <laughs> now, I, of course, will get 40 emails, a couple nasty handwritten notes. Someone, after I encouraged it, will drop a note in the offering basket. I just don't want the pain jam. But if I did swear, all of you would be listening. It's like when Jen said, no, sorry. Okay. Yes, you, oh, she did say that too. I was thinking about when you said, I would have thought that was kinky. Yeah, kinky. And then you did say, I'll be the first woman elder. That was very, boy, you were on a roll. Yes, I remember this. Yes, right? Yeah, I, it leaves an impression. Exactly right. I don't want to know anymore. Okay. The Amma gave words, but this is the way they wrote. I mean, this is the point. This is the point of writing this way. You try to grab attention. The Amma gave words that would be cultivated and reflected on in prayer, words that deeply impressed the mind and heart, words that spoke to the imagination and touched feelings. Now listen, has, has she said one thing about being rational here? No. The Amma never wrote just to give somebody information. They didn't just say, well, this is my disciple, a woman disciple, so I'm going to open up her head and pour in all the right stuff. She tried to capture her whole person. You should be thinking catechumenate here. Where am I at? These sayings, oh, she th sought to expose any and all barriers to a deeper experience of God. These sayings inspire us to stay single-minded in our pursuit of God and to seek to deepen our capacity for love. How many of you would like to have that? Single-mindedness for God and a deeper capacity for love. Okay? That's what we're all after. And that's what these women were after. And the reason they left was because the chaos of the world lent itself to sin, and their sin was so painful they had to get away. Just think about that on your ride home today. The first time you committed, and you know these sins. I mean, there are things that, like the, like the Trade Center going down, like Kennedy being shot, there are things you will never forget the date, time, and place it happened. Boom, I can't believe I did that. Have you been forgiven? Fully. Do you still remember it? Fully. All the details. But in some sense, that's a good thing. So, Look at the next page and just look at the sayings of this first desert mother. Okay? The sayings of Ama Matrona. She has two here. And this is all she wrote. This, uh, this is all we can find, at least. <laughs> we carry ourselves. Now, think of yourself as a woman, okay? I, want, I, I can't. Some of these things you'll respond to differently than I will. Just like if we were reading the fathers, I'd respond differently. Think of yourself as a woman, though. We carry ourselves wherever we go. And we cannot escape temptation by mere flight. Okay? We carry, just, just let's parse that out. We carry ourselves wherever we go. What is she trying to say? Yeah. Yes. Uh, that is, that's actually a great example of carrying yourself wherever you go. And, and, and I'll give you another, you're right, having their bundles on their head, that's the way they operate. But I'll give you an example of a, maybe a different culture, but a similar thing. I was in downtown Baltimore two weekends ago, two Saturdays ago, and they held this conference where I gave a paper at a, at a Catholic women's shelter. I was stunned at the women's shelter, one, by how many women were there, but by how many women spent time before lunch putting on their makeup. You think you're at a, at a, at a women's shelter. Now, this is, and this is not a, a mockery. I was just surprised. These women have no home, no goods, no clothing, I mean, except for what's on their own back. 
But all of them carried their own makeup, and all of them sat down, no lie, at the table. And actually, I loved it. It was a great experience. They all sat down before lunch, put on their eyeshadow, made sure their hair was okay. So that's talk about carrying yourself. That's your identity. It's who you are. You can never leave that behind. Another woman, and this was the most stunning to me, I had a huge faux pas. I sit down to lunch. Of course, all the other people in this conference are eating where? By themselves. I'm the only one. I'm the only white person in the room sitting at tables with people. And they were all eating by themselves like a, every conference goer does. So I was eating this non-al dente spaghetti. It was so mushy it was almost gross. Um, and some pink cake that they made for these women. And I was sitting at a table with this little kid who was about four. And I loved him because he was like Emma. And he had crumbs all, I had crumbs all, I was wearing this, and I had crumbs all over myself. And we were playing with cards and eating lunch. And this woman comes up and sits down, and she looks like all of you. Only white woman in the room, dressed very, very well. Um, and I, here's what I thought my first reaction was. Is this woman from Wheaton? This is no lie, my first reaction. Is this woman from Wheaton? She looks like a Wheaton woman, okay? She sits down. She starts to eat. She has all these conversations. You can tell she's articulate. She's bright. She's leading the table in conversation. She's given care. And I said, how many days a week do you work here? She said, I live here. She said, I live here. And I was stunned. And then how do you recover? I mean, what am I supposed to say? Oh, I saw your clothing. Good, no, but then I'm mocking the people who are next to her. I said, oh, I had no idea. She said, I left my house in Seattle. My husband left me. Of course, the husband was what? A Lutheran? <laughs> yeah. That didn't go over so well when I said I'm a Lutheran pastor. Oh, my ex-husband is a Lutheran. Don't blame it on me. It wasn't my fault. <laughs> she leaves Seattle, comes to Baltimore, wants to be closer to her kids. Of course, her kids say, no, we want nothing to do with you. So now she's got absolutely nothing. But she carried herself wherever she went. Okay. What else do you hear in that? Think about yourself as a mother, as a wife, as a woman. What does it mean to carry yourself wherever you go? Are there, and this is maybe a difference for men and women, so I'll just ask because I actually don't know. Are there certain emotions attached to certain sins that you've committed? Like great sadness, great regret, and they still sort of, like I can tell you this. This doesn't mean men are not emotional, but sometimes sins are emotionless. And even the remembrance of those sins, that doesn't mean that there's no emotion attached to it, but it doesn't sort of, you don't remember the emotions the way you remember the sins. I can remember a lot of sins. I can't remember the emotions attached to them. Was I angry? Was I happy? Was I, pick your thing. For women, this, so this is a live question. Do you remember the emotions attached to those as much as you do the sin itself? I blew up because I was so upset and I was angry and I was sad and I was, my guess is it would be yes. Yeah. No? Oh, okay. Well, let's move on. That is not my goal. There are sometimes when making people cry is to your advantage, but this is not the case, okay? Exactly. So two things. One is the recognition that you'll have these things wherever you go. And the other thing is um, these women went to escape this, but going to the desert is not the only place you can go to escape those things. So, the, so here's the goal in all of this, to try to find out how to get order. And I wrote this to you in an email. Order and simplicity in life today. How can we do that? There is a way, and it's not the desert. So order and simplicity, how can we find that today? That's why I said, I think last week I said, can we be in monastic community? I don't mean we all wear habits and say prayer seven times a day. That's not what I mean. 
But a monastic community is defined by order and simplicity. Can we be that? And how can we do it when you've got car payments and you've got a husband who works and you've got kids who need to go places and we're all oversubscribed. We all got too much going on. How can we do that? There was a hand over here. Yes. When you live by the rules of simplicity and order, you also live by the rules of community. And community is what defines your existence. This is why, and we'll look at this in just a second. Well, actually, let's look at it right now. Number two, which goes hand in hand with number one. Many people live secluded lives on the mountain. Many people living secluded lives on the mountain have perished by living like people in the world. Does that make sense? You go off to the mountain by yourself, and how do they perish? They want the life of the world on the mountain by themselves. They, or, or they take the world with them, exactly. And what's the way of the world? This is the thing. This is the world. This is the church. Okay? So they go live here, but they drag all this baggage with them. What happens? Chaos comes here. Pride comes here. Greed comes here. All the other stuff comes here, which leaves it wide, wide open for the demonic. Leaves it wide open for the demonic. Okay? Chaos is the agent of evil. I'm telling you, I mean, like, the first thing I'm going to do when I get home today, I'm going to go out and clean my car. <laughs> I'm going to clean the garage. I mean, yeah, is the devil living in my car? No. But all those chaotic things, what do they do? They drive you nuts. They, they break you down, and all of a sudden you're exposed, and when you're exposed, who can pounce on you? The devil. Yes. Exactly right. That's why Sunday's Bible study was about making choices, and the choices boil down to good or best. People make good choices in the world. They don't all make bad choices, but the church is not defined by good. The church is defined by best. And best is not always the latest, greatest. You're exactly right. Yeah, Holly. That's exactly right. It's one thing to clean the house. It's another thing then to fill it with the best things. So this is like, and now let's translate this to the church even, and to all of you. It's like when you confess your sins on Sunday. You're completely wiped clean. But confessing your sins isn't the last word. It's the first word. So you confess, you're forgiven. That's the first word. And then think about what happens in the rest of the service. Literally, you are filled. Not just figure, not just like, oh, the Lord spoke to me, it wasn't this great. Literally, he crawls into your ear and in through your mouth. So whatever was wiped clean, the things of the world, is filled by order, simplicity, community, truth, reality, all these sorts of things. That's why full blast Eucharist is everything. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. So let's let's read the rest of this, because I think there might we might have a Jesus example for this, okay? So many people living secluded lives on the mountain have perished by living like people in the world. That makes sense. If you carry the world to the church, it'll ruin the church. If you carry the world to the mountain, it'll ruin your life there. It is better to live in a crowd, that's like AKA world, and want to live a solitary life than to live a solitary life but all the time be longing for community. Okay? So it, the question is, what defines our existence as Christians? Being alone or being in a community? This is N.T. Wright. Beauty, spirituality, justice, and community. Community defines our existence as Christians. When Jesus does his greatest stuff, he always does it at a table with lots of people having fellowship. It's always all about community. But here's the Jesus, Jesus example. What does Jesus do every so often? 
Go off to a solitary place. Even Jesus himself needs to get away from it all. And N.T. Wright talks about this in Simply Christian. He says, yeah, there are people that like to be away, but by nature, none of us like to be away always. Yes. How would, what? Ama, yeah? That's exactly right. Yeah, the biblical word for community is koinonia, which is also the word for the Eucharist, one of the words for the Eucharist. You have communion, community with each other and also with Jesus. So you're right. It's not just about hanging out with your friends, although sometimes that is an expression of the greater community. Hanging out with friends is not a bad thing. Exactly. So you have to go to koinonia, which is Eucharist, which is the Holy Communion. This is our starting point. I told you last week, this is gonna, you're all going to say this is simplistic, not simple, simplistic, which is negative, because it's going to be all about the Eucharist. It is all about the Eucharist. The koinonia of the altar is our starting point. And everything else then you know, sort of fleshes out from there. Donna, go ahead. Yeah, what's the purpose? And what is it that you think the Lord wants? What is the outcome you think the Lord wants from this? That does determine the situation. Because there are times when Jesus gets away and just forgets about it all. And there are times when he's having a great meal with friends. Exactly right. Yeah, exactly. Keep going. Anything else? Yes. Yeah. So, good. Yeah, right. Your best life now. Yeah. Yeah. So, now translate that to the church. Keep going. How would that translate to the church then? This is, I mean, this is what St. Paul, or this is what uh, St. Peter and St. John talk about when they say, Young people should be brought up under old people, and you have elders in the church who care for you. How does this all play out in our life together? The idea that you can't go at it alone. Yeah. Exactly right. Yeah, I mean, you notice, and you don't need to raise your hands, but I, I hope many of you notice this in your own marriages, where there are things your spouse is good at or, or helpful with that, frankly, you just don't enjoy or love, but you complement each other very well. This is why, this is, I mean, I know I keep harping on this, but this is why St. Paul says in Ephesians 5, Marriage is just an image of the church. That's all it is. So the, the complementing that goes on within a marriage is precisely the same thing that should happen in the church. And that's how you move forward as a community. That's why you're considered one body. So keep going. Anything else? I want to just look at, go back up to the, to the first one real quick. I, I just want to look at the ending of this because I'll be honest, I think, it, I think it's well interesting maybe is a nice way of saying it. We carry ourselves wherever we go. Okay, we got that. We cannot escape temptation by mere flight. What does she mean there? Because there are texts in Scripture that say, flee temptation. Okay? That's part of it. Yeah, it's all, yeah, that's right. Is fleeing temptation, this is a real question, is fleeing temptation different than fleeing from Satan? I would say yes. I would say yes. And I'll give you an example. If you've got a Bible, everybody have a Bible there? Flip open to um, Ephesians 6.13. I'm going to give you three verses that I think uh, support what she's saying here and show you there is a time to flee and there is a time to stay. You remember, and we've talked about this quite a bit, You know, the prodigal by fleeing did not do the right thing. So just fleeing because you've sinned or you're shamed, that's not the right thing. In fact, that breaks community. But there are times to flee temptation. Like, for instance, if you know, um, 
I mean, pick your thing, whatever your sin may be. If you know that you can't watch decent stuff on TV, then put the parental lock on it. It's just, that's just fleeing temptation. This is very basic stuff. But look at Ephesians 6.13, what this says. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day and having done all, not flee, but stand firm. Go to 1 Peter 5. Remember, this is written to the church. This is what the church should look like. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 9. Well, verse 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. That's not fleeing talk. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering, this is interesting, are being experienced by your brotherhood, by your community. The same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself... Restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Last one, James chapter 4. Hebrew, Hebrews, James. James chapter 4, verse 7. Now this, I think, is the most interesting one. Chapter 4, James 4, verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God... Let's just write these. Uh, oh, Submit. There are three key words. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And he will flee from you. Now, submit, interestingly, is the same word used when St. Paul talks about how wives should react to their husbands. Submit, and I just had, a, I got a wedding today, uh, and I always say to brides and grooms when they come in for premarital counseling, when it says the husband is the head, that doesn't mean he picks everything. It doesn't mean he says we're going to Florida this year and we're all going to Florida. And when it says submit, guess what the word is there? It's a military word, which doesn't mean you do whatever the husband asks. It actually means be protected. Be protected. So submit to God. Be protected by God. What does it say then? Resist Satan. Resist means, the Greek word there is to stand firm. Hold your ground. And he will flee. Actually, the Greek word is, he will flee for safety. Isn't that interesting? Who stands firm? You stand firm. Who flees for safety? The devil flees for safety. How does it all happen? If you submit to God, which means... You are protected by him. Where are you most protected? In the church. How are you protected? With the Eucharist, by community. Part of the reason you don't go to church alone is so when somebody bangs on you, your friends should all come to your defense. This is what community is all about. Okay? And I'm serious. The live question, and we, you know, we got 30 seconds left. The live question is how can you have these things? Order, simplicity, you know, community, how can you have those things not just on Sunday but every day? I mean, one way to start is by being at the Eucharist every day if you can make it. The other, way, the other way to start is by saying your prayers. And here's the thing. For some of you, praying is very easy. You've been doing it for 40 years. You just wake up in the morning. I was up at 3 a.m. this morning. The first thing I did was pray for all of you, and I was trying to remember all your names as I went through. 
I couldn't remember where you all sat, but like good Lutherans, you usually sit in the same spot. Yeah. So I was going table by table, thinking about all the women in the room, praying for all of you at 3 a.m. when I was wide awake. But praying isn't even easy for me. Why isn't it easy? Not because I don't like to pray, but because what happens? You're distracted. So if you're distracted, you have to do something to order your prayers. Find a way to order your prayers. This is one place where your Catholic friends have an advantage. How do they order their prayers? Yeah. You can count them. You can keep track of them. If something happens, you know where you left off. You ever been praying for someone or something, and you get distracted, and you come back, and you say, oh, shoot, where was I? And then you start all over again, and you get frustrated, and what happens the next day? You don't say your prayers. This is the way we proceed as community. If everybody has an ordered, simple life, community is a joy. You don't have to go off, you don't have to go off and live in the desert. I mean, this is what we need to be. Okay, So monastic community, think that way, in the best sense of the term. Any questions? All right, let's pray and let's go. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Okay, we'll see you next week.